0: Three Deeper Cuts, hoo Good afternoon and welcome to the Three Deeper Cuts podcast, your lifestyle magazine for the practicing surgical pathologist. I am your host, Chuck G. Every week, we bring you something to think about, something to read, or something to listen to. Three Deeper Cuts is brought to you by Formalin Fixed Paraffin Embedded Tissue. Emphasis on the formalin, because... Without the high exposure to 10% buffered neutral formalin that I experienced during my four years of residency in St. Louis, I wouldn't be able to think about all of the crazy things that I write about here on Three Deeper Cuts Publishing. And if you're not a pathologist and you're listening to this right now, thank you and welcome. Couple of announcements for today. How y'all doing? Ladies, gentlemen, I hope you had a good New Year and a fantastic holiday season in general. I hope you got some good gym workouts in. I hope you hogged up all the equipment while scrolling your phones. I hope you pushed it on the deadlifts, maybe backed off a little on the rows. I hope you're... Pull-up progressions are going well. Consider a weight belt for future. I don't know what I'm talking about. Look, it's a new year. It's a fresh start. And whatever habits you started doing six months ago, this this is where you built momentum. I don't know about you, but I'm like an anti-resolution type of guy. I'm one of those. I, I think it's dumb. I think it's a corporate shill. I think it's part of the corporate storytelling drama. I think it has absolutely no teeth. The only thing that has teeth are the actions that you took six months prior to New Year's. Because you want to show up on January 1 with momentum. No excuses. No Karens. No commuting. See, there you go. You didn't think I was going to say that. No commuting. How does that... What does commuting have to do with your New Year's resolutions? Look, everything that you're trying to do in your free time on the edges of your day job, whether that is working out, working on something else, playing with your kids, spending time with wifey, all that stuff revolves around streamlining your entire life, in my opinion, I think. I think you just got to simplify. If you really want to live life to the fullest, you got to simplify. What else is going on in the world? Oh, I like this. Vinay Prasad added, again, I love this guy, man. He, this guy has cojones of steel. So here's the headline on his substack. Hospitals that reinstate universal masking with flimsy surgical masks are anti-science. Not even one hospital is running a cluster randomized trial. And I gotta be careful how I say this. I personally disagree with this. I, I personally disagree with this. I think I think that everyone's jumping on this bandwagon. Masking has made a fool of most scientists. They love bioplausible stories, but have failed to conduct even the most basic efficacy trials. Masking in hospitals is unlikely to slow the juggernaut of respiratory viruses, both iatrogenic and the more relevant cue of a cross. The community. Implanting the policy year over year on running zero cluster randomized trials is embarrassing for medicine. I agree. We might as well open up a vitamin C infusion center and pray to the sun god. That's what he says. And I agree with him. And as gosh, if you're like me, you're more of a centrist, you're more of a practicalist you have to tread lightly when you talk about these topics i they shouldn't be controversial but it's interesting that so this, so this study that he published uh changes in masking policies in us healthcare facilities in the first quarter of 2023 so they basically found that political ideology was a better predictor of whether or not people wore masks as opposed to uh decreased number of COVID hospitalizations. It's, it's a scary time that we live in that you look if you work for the system if you're credentialed at a hospital you, you basically just have to bend the knee and do what they tell you and I mean most physicians especially on the coasts most physicians and most hospital administrators tend to be Democrats and so you just you gotta do what they tell you to do, even if there's no science backing it. And this is how people lose lose trust 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 in the healthcare system. So what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Well, you can talk about it. You can talk about it on platforms like like X, where you won't get canceled for speaking freely. You might get community noted but this is all kind of a work in progress. I think I actually I think community notes, which is the like the self-check mechanism of X where basically people can critique and downvote content that has been shown to be false. But you can't cancel the person. You can only replace it with better ideas. Better ideas backed up with evidence. So you know the irony of all this is I, I am currently locked out of my X account. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I was double fisting this morning. I had the spaces going on in one hand and I was I was being a hardcore reply guy on the other with the MacBook Pro. It was a good time. I got a lot of good replies in, but now I can't get into the account. So I don't know, maybe I forgot to log out of my laptop and then I took my phone to the gym and uh, and I had just activated dual the dual factor authenticator. So maybe that's what caused them to block my account or lock my account. So I don't know how long it's going to take, but it's probably good that they did it tonight because I'm on vacation anyways. It doesn't really matter for now. And uh, and it forces me to do this podcast, which I've been putting off and putting off and putting off because the book that I want to talk to you about today is kind of a hard one to make a podcast about. It's a weird book. It's a science fiction book called Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert A. Heinlein. The book came out in 1961, and it was very controversial. It essentially attacks every facet of middle American life in the 1960s with biting satire and energetic wit. So in preparation for this, so you can just go on to Amazon, pick up this book, uh, Stranger in a Strange Land. And then I just read some book reviews, like old stuff, you know, stuff that came out. Uh, let's see, one of these is from New York Times Archive, 1997. Uh, I think there's another review that came out a few years before that. Britannica.com was another source I used. Britannica.com and books.com or the book section, whatever. So so I, I just went through a couple review sites and then what you're getting from me is the raw rough chucky interpretation of this book this is hard okay doing these book report style podcasts it's hard with the novels like the, the longer books get a little bit more confusing because number one i have a day job so it's very rare that i'm actually sitting down and reading more than 100 pages at a time usually i have to break it up over the course of like a month and i and, you, and i'm just reading bits at a time highlighting bookmarking and then just piecing stuff together. But this book was hilarious. And I want to try to keep this PG to PG-13 because I make these podcasts also so that my son can listen to them one day in the future. But I hadn't read any of Robert A. Heinlein's prior books. But apparently, according to the Gates cast, Bill Gates, uh, apparently all of his prior books were more Kid and teenager friendly, whereas Stranger in a Strange Land uh, deals with a lot of very much adult topics like cult formation, uh, uh, cult religions, adult. I mean, it's like sexual activity towards the latter half of the not uh, the novel, uh, polytheism, which goes directly against what was mainstream in the 1960s there's a lot of references to like hinduism and buddhism throughout the dialogue in the book which again was very advanced for 1961 and he also predicts technological revolutions such as flying cars self-driving cars voice-operated cars uh and and other things, so it's it was a lot of fun to read, but because it's so out there it's just it's kind of hard to it was hard to piece it all back together so I used a couple of references and so i'm going to just go into this i'll give you I'll give you a little outline first so the three main characters of this book are Valentine Michael Smith, who is the Martian Jubal Harshaw, which is the uh kind of the He's this eccentric, semi-retired doctor-slash-lawyer-slash-Renaissance man who kind of takes Valentine Michael Smith under his wing like a father figure. And number three, Jillian Boardman. These are the three char- three main characters. Jillian Boardman is the nurse who is basically the protector and later on becomes a lover of the Martian Valentine Michael Smith. Uh, and she is also very unusual for the time period of 1960s. That's like a very conservative time. Monogamous uh, monogamy culture it was like mainstream back then. Uh, but today, you read this book, and because our culture is so hypersexualized, you, I mean, you read the, the content in this book, and it doesn't even phase you because you're so desensitized to everything going on in pop culture. But in those days, uh, you know, having multiple sexual partners as a woman was uh was very unusual he also okay so okay now who is valentine michael smith so that's the most important thing he's the most important character in this book because he was born on mars to earthling parents and they died and he's brought back to earth specifically the u.s and the book takes place after world war three has already passed and he arrives on this spaceship and the ruling party is, is called like the Federation. I forget the full name of it. Maybe it'll come up as I'm reading. And, and he, so his parents die and he's brought to earth and he has no knowledge of earth culture, earth customs. He, he doesn't know what things like jealousy, desire, lying. These are all foreign qualities to him. And, uh, and he also has unusual powers such as telekinesis he can make objects levitate and disappear he can make people disappear um in fact he he kills a guy halfway to, through the novel and he um he's he's almost like a a Jesus Christ or a prophetic figure in the book and You know, let's just get into it so the story starts out they get back to the u.s and he is a person of value he's in a ultra secure classified hospital room and uh and people are very careful about not letting him the secret get out so let me just flip to some of these pages Okay, page 11. Smith had been aware of the doctors, but had grokked their intentions were benign. It was not necessary for the major part of him to be jerked back. So right off the bat, there is a term called grokked, grokking. It's a verb. So to grok means to understand deeply, to connect with someone on a very deep level. And uh, that concept just comes that word is used over and over and again uh, throughout the book Uh, at the morning hour when human nurses slap patients faces with cold wet cloths smith returned he speeded up his heart increased his respiration and took note of his surroundings viewing them with serenity he looked the room over noting with praise all details he was seeing it for the first time as he had been incapable of enfolding it when he had been brought there. This room was not commonplace to him. There was nothing like it on all Mars, nor did it resemble the wedge-shaped metal compartments of the champion. The champion is the spaceship that brought him to Earth. All right, skip ahead, page 15. Jillian Boardman was a competent nurse, and her hobby was men. She was on duty that day as supervisor of the floorworm Smith was. When the grapevine said that the patient in suite K-12 had never seen a woman in his life, she did not believe it. She went to pay a call on the strange patient. She knew of the no-female visitor's rule, and while she did not consider herself to be a visitor, she sailed past without attempting to use the guarded door. Marines had a stuffy habit of construing orders literally. Instead, she went into the adjacent watch room. All right, so... Uh, Valentine Michael Smith, he's sitting in this hospital room. He's never seen a woman before. He doesn't know what a woman is. And then a couple of pages later, there's just a funny interaction where, uh, so he looked her up and down. You are a woman? The question startled Jill Boardman. Her impulse was to answer flippantly, but Smith's grave face and oddly disturbed eyes checked her. She became aware emotionally that the emotional, that the impossible fact about this patient was true he did not know what a woman was she carefully answered yes i am a woman and then skip ahead (laughs) uh i do not know how does a woman look what makes you woman well for pity's sake this conversation was further out of hand than she had ever had had with a male since her 12th birthday you don't expect me to take off my clothes and show you smith took time to examine these symbols and try to translate them the first group he could not grok at all It might be one of those formal sounds these people use, so he's struggling to understand what she's saying. Uh, And then skip down, he's thinking to himself, perhaps if the woman took its clothes off, neither of them need discorporate. He smiled happily, please. Jill opened her mouth, closed it. She opened it again. Well, I'll be darned. Smith could grok emotional violence and knew that he had offered the wrong reply. All right, skip ahead. So there's a little bit of a back and forth there. Jill spent the rest of her watch in a daze. The face of the man from Mars stayed in her mind and she mulled over the crazy things he had said. No, not crazy, she had done in her stint uh, in psychiatric wards and felt certain that his remarks had not been psychotic. She decided that innocent was the term, then decided that the word was not adequate. His expression was innocent. His eyes were not. What sort of creature had a face like that? So this is a theme throughout the book. He's just like this quirky, innocent guy who has no idea what he's he's talking about. Okay, skip ahead a little bit. So now things are kind of tense in this hospital because there's a very important legal decision called the Larkin Decision. Basically, that says that uh, this Martian, Michael Smith, he is worth millions, and he also has the rights to Mars as a planet. So this is basically a, a billion-dollar man. He doesn't know it, but the High Court of the Federation, which is like the ruling body in uh, um, uh, in this area, I'm just going to call it the United States because that's how I interpret it, because the <laughs> because the name of the hospital is Bethesda Hospital, so. That, I think the author was in the Navy, actually. Yeah, he was in the Navy in 1934. So, yeah. So this opening scene takes place in Bethesda Hospital in what I assume is, is in D.C. So the Federation wants to keep him locked up in this hospital. And uh, Jill is very protective of the Martian. And he she basically she doesn't know what to do with him but she knows she wants to get him out of the hospital so she takes him to this uh newspaper executive named Ben Caxton and Ben uh gives her like a little bit of advice cuz he knows he knows what's going on behind the scenes with politicians and senators and in the courtrooms and everything so he kind of knows what the federation's intentions are with uh Valentine Michael Smith so Jill and Michael go to this the condo of this newspaper executive Ben Caxton, and they're talking about where to where to go to hide the Martian from the Federation. And so, so he says. Uh, so this is a dialogue here. Caxton scowled again. I've been thinking of that. I can't nurse him. We could put him in my flat, and I could nurse him. We'll do. We'll do it, Ben. Slow down douglas would pull some rabbit out of his hat and smith would go back to the pokey and so would both of us maybe he wrinkled his brow i know one man who might get away with it who ever heard of jubal harshaw huh who hasn't that's one of his advantages everybody knows who he is it makes him so hard it makes him hard to shove around being both a doctor of medicine and a lawyer, he is three times as hard to shove. But most important, he is so rugged and individual, and individualist that he would fight the whole Federation with just a pocket knife if it suited him. And that makes him eight times as hard. I got acquainted with him during the disaffection trials. He's a friend I can count on. If I can get Smith out of Bethesda, I'll take him to Harshaw's place in the Poconos and then just let those jerks try to grab him. Between my column and Harshaw's love for a fight will give him a bad time. And then skip ahead a little bit. There's kind of this tense scene in the condo where the feds try to, they they basically break in and he's negotiating with these federal agents. Uh, The room was gloomy. We kept it semi-darkened because his eyes are not accustomed to our light levels. Uh, Mike, I've brought some friends to see you. Caxton pressed closer. Floating, half-concealed by the way his body sank into the plastic skin and covered to his armpits by a sheet, was a young man. He looked at them, but said nothing. His smooth, round face was expressionless. So far as Ben could tell, this was the man on stereo the night before. He had a sick feeling that little Jill had tossed him a live grenade, a slander suit that might bankrupt him. You are Valentine Michael Smith? Yes. The man from Mars? Yes. You were on stereo last night. The man did not answer. Tanner said, I don't think he understands. Mike, you remember what you did with Mr. Douglas last night. The face looked petulant. Bright lights hurt. Yes, the lights hurt your eyes. Mr. Douglas had you say hello to people. The patient smiled slightly. Long ride in a chair. Okay, agreed Caxton. I'll I'll catch on. Mike, are they treating you all right? Yes. You don't have to stay here. Can you walk? Okay, so now they're taking him out. Okay, skip ahead. So yeah, again, it's Jill and Mike in uh, Ben Caxton's condo, and they're being kind of chased down by the feds. Open up in there. Jill dropped the shorts. Did they know anyone was inside? Yes, they must. Else, they would have never, they would never have come in here. The damn robo cab must have given her away. Should she answer or play possum? The shout over the announcing circuit was repeated. She whispered to Smith, ''Stay here!'' Then went into the living room. ''Who is it?'' She called out, striving to keep her voice normal. ''Open in the name of the law. Open in the name of what law? Don't be silly. Tell me who you are before I call the police. We are the police. Are you Gillian Boardman?'' ''Me? I'm Phyllis O'Toole, and I'm waiting for Mr. Caxton. I'm going to call the police and report an invasion of privacy.'' Miss Boardman, we have a warrant for your arrest. Open up, or it will be hard or it will go hard with you. I'm not Miss Boardman. I'm calling the police. The voice did not answer. Jill waited, swallowing shortly. she felt radiant heat against her face. The door's lock began to glow red, then white. Something crunched, and the door slid open. Two men were there. One stepped in, grinned, and said, "That's the babe, Johnson. Look around and find him." Okay, so so they end up getting away from there and they they go out to uh, this remote area called the Poconos. Uh, so this is uh, after, like page 107. While Mrs. Douglas was speaking freely on a subject she knew little about, Jubal E. Harsha, LLB, M.D., S-d-uh, whatever, S.D., <laughs> bon vivant, gourmet, sybarite, popular author, extraordinaire, and neo-pessimist philosopher was sitting by his pool at home in the Pocono, scratching the gray thatch on his chest and watching three secretaries splash in the pool. They were all amazingly beautiful, and they were also amazingly good secretaries. In Harshaw's opinion, the principle of least action required that utility and beauty be combined. Anne was blonde, Miriam red-headed, and Dorcas dark. They ranged respectively from pleasantly plump to deliciously slender; their ages spread over fifteen years, but it was hard to tell which was the oldest. Harshaw was working hard. Most of him was watching pretty girls do pretty things with sun and water. One small, shuttered, soundproof compartment was composing. He claimed this method of writing was to hook his gonads in parallel with his thalamus and disconnect his cerebrum. His habits lent credibility to his to the th- the theory. Uh so so they're out at this little compound in this rural area. It's very luxurious. Uh skip ahead. Uh so now it's just basically the nurse, Jillian Boardman and Jubal, they're just talking about the situation. Uh uh Jubal, I wouldn't want to impose on you. You already have, don't worry, child. There are always freeloaders around here. Nobody imposes on me against my will, so relax. Now, our patient, you said you wanted to help him get to his rights. You expected my help? Well, Ben said, Ben seemed to think that you would help. Ben does not speak for me. I am not interested in this lad's so-called rights. His claim to Mars is lawyer's hogwash. As a lawyer myself, I need not respect it. As for the wealth, that is supposed to be his. The situation results from other people's passions and our odd tribal customs. He has earned none of it. He would be lucky if they bilked him of it, but I would not scan a newspaper to find out. If Ben expected me to fight for Smith's rights, you have come to the wrong house. Oh, Jill felt forlorn. I had better arrange to move him. Oh, no. Not unless you wished. But you said... I said I was not interested in legal fictions. But a guest under my roof is another matter. He can stay if he likes. I just wanted to make clear that I had no intention of meddling with politics to suit romantic notions you or Ben Caxton may have. My dear, I used to think I was serving humanity, and I pleasured in the thought. Then I discovered that humanity does not want to be served. On the contrary, it resents any attempt to to serve it. So now I do what pleases Jubal Harshaw. He turned away. Time for dinner, isn't it, Dorcas? Is anyone doing anything? Miriam, she put down her needlepoint and stood So basically he's got these three uh, beautiful secretaries named Miriam, Dorcas, and uh, I forget the th- third one's name. It'll come up eventually. And like the next 50 pages are them just kind of BSing. In his mansion, uh, there's some just funny dialogue there. Skip ahead, page 175. Dr. Jubal Harshaw, professional clown, amateur subversive, and a parasite by choice, had an almost Martian attitude towards hurry. Being aware that he had but a short time to live and having neither Martian nor Kansan faith in immortality, he purposed to live each golden moment as eternity, without fear, without hope, without sybaritic gusto. To this end, he required something larger than Diogenes' tub, but smaller than Kubla's pleasure dome. His was a simple place. A few acres kept private with electrified fence, a house of 14 rooms or so with running secretaries and other modern conveniences. To support his austere nest, and rabble staff, he put forth minimum effort for maximum return because it was easier to be rich than poor. Harshaw wished to live in a lazy luxury, doing what amused Harshaw. He felt aggrieved when circumstances forced on him a necessity for hurry and would never admit that he was enjoying himself. This morning, he needed to speak to the planet's chief executive. He knew the flapper system made such contact all but impossible. Harshaw disdained to surround himself with flappers suitable to his own rank. He answered his telephone himself if he had happened if he happened to be at hand because of because each call offered odds, that he could be rude to some stranger for daring to invade his privacy without cause. Cause, by Harshaw's definition, he knew that he would not find such conditions at the Executive Palace. Uh, Mr Secretary General would not answer his own phone but Harsha had years of practicing practice in outwitting human customs so this is kind of another running thread line of the book is just like Jubal Harsha he's he's a lawyer and a doctor and he's just like this very street smart and he's always finding a way to shake the feds who are chasing uh Michael the Martian uh Okay, skip ahead 183. Yes, Jubal, the man from Mars got out of the pool and trotted over like an eager puppy. Harshaw looked at him, looked him over, decided that he must weigh 20 pounds more than he had on arrival, all of it muscle. Mike, do you know where Duke is? No, Jubal. Well, that settled it. The boy didn't know how to lie. Wait, hold it. Jubal remembered Mike's computer-like habit of answering only the question asked. And Mike had not appeared to know where that pesky box was once it was gone. Mike, when did you see him last? I saw Duke go upstairs when Jill and I came uh, downstairs this morning. Uh, When time to cook breakfast, Mike added proudly, I helped cooking. That was the last time you saw Duke? I am not see Duke since, Jubal. I proudly burned toast. I'll bet you did. You'll make some woman a fine husband if you aren't careful. Oh, I burned it most carefully. Jubal, huh? Yes, Ann. Duke grabbed an early breakfast and lit out for the town. I thought you knew. I think Anne's the other uh, secretary, and Duke is one of the. He has like some male uh, wait staff at the mansion, and so uh, that's just like one little scenario with them. Okay. Uh, okay, skip ahead. So on page one eighty nine. So the Fosterite practice, but how could he could. But he could see how Mike had been misled, the Fosterite going to heaven. So Fosterites are this, like, religious cult that Mike and Jill come into contact with. For, for some reason, Mike is really into this religious cult, and he admires them. And he eventually wants to form his own cult, religion. Um, and, okay, but you could see how Mike had been misled. The Fosterite going to heaven at a selected time did sound like the voluntary discorporation, which Jubal did not doubt, was the practice on Mars. Jubal suspected that a better term for the Fosterite practice was murder, but such had never been proved and rarely hinted. Foster had been the first to go to heaven on schedule, dying in a prophecy dis instant. Since then, it had been a Fosterite mark of special grace. It had been years since any coroner had had the temerity to pry into such deaths. Not that Jubal cared. A good fosterite was a dead fosterite. So obviously it's a controversial religious cult. Uh, Okay, let's keep going. Uh, But how, from the viewpoint of a Martian, did man differ from other animals? Would a race that could levitate, and God knows what else, be impressed by engineering? If so, would the Aswan Dam or a thousand miles of coral reef win first prize, man's self-awareness, sheer conceit. There was no way to prove that sperm whales or sequoias were not philosophers and poets exceeding any human merit. There was one field in which man was unsurpassed. He showed unlimited ingenuity in devising bigger and more efficient ways to kill off, enslave, harass, and in all ways make an unbearable nuisance of himself to himself. Man was his own grimmest joke on himself. The very bedrock of humor was... Man is the animal who laughs, Jubal answered. Mike considered this. Then I am not a man. Huh? I do not laugh. I have heard laughing, and it frightened me. Then I grokked that it did not hurt. I have tried to learn. Mike threw his head back and gave out a raucous cackle. Jubal covered his ears. Stop. There, there's that word again, grok, means to understand. Okay, let's keep on going. Okay, let's skip ahead, page 215, and 216. So in between, they're basically just playing around this mansion. There's a scene where, you know, he, the Mike, like, jumps to the bottom of the swimming pool and just kind of hangs out there for a while. Uh, he has all these weird skills, like he can swallow his own tongue, Okay. Jubal considered calling Mike into pickup and naming him, but McKenzie's own programs had run the fake man from Mars interviews and McKenzie was either in the hoax or he was honest as Jubal thought and would not believe that he'd been hoaxed. All right, Tom, but you know your way around in the government who calls Douglas whenever he likes and gets him. I don't mean Sandforth. So they're talking about the government agents. Uh, that are looking for him. No one, Damn it, no man lives in a vacuum. There must be people who can phone him and not get brushed off by the secretary. Some of his cabinet, I suppose. Not all of them. I don't know any of them either. I don't mean politicos. Who can call on him on a private line and invite him to play poker? Um, You don't want much, do you? Whether Well, there's Jake Allenby. I've met him. He doesn't like me. I don't like him. He knows it. Douglas doesn't have many intimate friends. His wife rather discourages, say Jubal, how you feel about astrology. And never touch the stuff. Prefer brandy. I love that line. Well, that's a matter of taste. But see here, Jubal, if you ever let on I told you this, I'll cut your lying throat. Noted. Agreed. Proceed. Well, Agnes Douglas does touch the stuff. And I know where she gets it her astrologer can call mrs douglas anytime and and believe you me mrs douglas has the ear of the secretary general you can call her a st- astrologer and the rest is up to you okay so skip ahead page 240, 240 okay uh harshaw stopped a wrangle about whether Duke had or had not told Larry that a circuit breaker must be reset if the equipment was to be used. So he's talking about his, I think, two of the the little waiters that he has at his mansion. Jubal did not care who was to blame. It all confirmed his conviction that technology had reached its peak with the Model T Ford and had been growing decadent ever since. They got through the depth and color interview. Mike sent greetings to his friend's of the champion champion is the space shuttle including one to dr mahmood delivered in throat-rasping martian at last jubal set the telephone for 2 hours refusal stretched stretched and felt a great and felt great weariness wondered if he were getting old where's dinner which one of you wenches was supposed to cook tonight gad this household is falling to rack and ruin It was my turn tonight, Jill answered, but excuses, always excuses. Boss, Anne interrupted sharply. How do you expect anyone to cook when you've kept us penned up all afternoon? That's the moose's problem, Jubal said dourly. If Armageddon is held on these premises, I expect meals hot and on time, right up to the final trump. Furthermore, furthermore, Anne completed. It's only 7.40 and plenty of time to have dinner by 8, so quit yelping. Crybaby. Only 20 minutes of 8? "'Seems like a week since lunch. "'You haven't left a civilized amount of time "'for pre-dinner drink. "'Poor you. "'Somebody get me a drink. "'Get everybody a drink. "'Let's skip dinner. "'I feel like getting as tight as a tent rope in a rain. "'And how are we fixed for smorgasbord? "'Plenty. "'Why not thaw out 18 or 19 kinds "'and let everybody eat when he feels like it? "'What's all the argument?' "'Right away,' agreed Jill." Ann stopped to kiss him on his bald spot. Boss, you've done nobly. We'll feed you and get you drunk and put you to bed. Wait, Jill, I'll help. I may help too, Smith said. Eagerly. Sure, Mike, you can carry trays. Boss, dinner will be by the pool. It's hot tonight. It's a hot night. How else? When they left, Jubal said to Duke, where the hell have you been? Thinking. Doesn't pay makes you discontented. Any results? Yes, said Duke. I've decided that Mike eats his business. What Mike eats is his business. Congratulations, a desire not to butt into other people's business is 80% of all human wisdom. You butt into other people's business. Who said I was wise? Jubal, if I offered Mike a glass of water, would he go through that lodge routine? I think he would. Duke, the only human characteristic Mike has, is an overwhelming desire to be liked. But I want to make sure that you know how serious it is. I accepted water brotherhood with Mike before I understood it, and I've become deeply entangled with his responsibilities. You'll be committing yourself never to lie to him, never to mislead him, to stick by him come what may. Better think about it. Okay, so just to, like, zoom out a little bit. So, big picture, Jubal is this doctor. He basically agrees to help protect Jill and Mike from the Federation. They're hunting them down. And he keeps Mike at his estate out in the the Poconos and is being mentored by Jill and by Jubal and by the secretaries of how to speak the language and everything. And Jubal has this uncanny way of diffusing Mike's political importance. So he basically goes back to the Federation and just basically says a bunch of stuff to these bureaucrats and convinces them he, that he's not as valuable as they think he is and he makes Uh, uh, douglas who is one of those bureaucrats an ally by convincing him that uh, that he should actually become an overseer of mike's personal fortune i don't know where i don't know like where all this money is being held but bottom line he's protecting them from being uh from basically being imprisoned or being taken against their will. So and then so there's another so Mike is in meanwhile he's fascinated with human religion and then they go to like this religious group called the Fosterites. They have like this big following with celebrities and uh like adult actresses and strippers and uh and they have like all kinds of vices in their organization like gambling and uh is it it's just like a very unusual religious cult and mike mike ultimately starts his own religion but he doesn't have the flashy salesmanship needed to, to like grow the, the cult humor, and he he. So the name of his church is the Church of All Worlds, and he uses these. Uh, so I'm not going to get into all the rest of this because I don't want to make this like a rated R podcast, but. Uh, bottom line, they're they're doing like a lot of adult activities. It's it's very weird. I mean, things just go into this third dimension at that point in the book, and and so meanwhile, uh, Michael Smith, the Martian, and Jill grow increasingly closer. They uh, so they're basically in a relationship, uh, and within the Web of this new religious cult that he has started. He, uh, let's just say there's uh extra activities going on on the side. Let's just leave it at that. So, I look, I wasn't expecting this book to get all raunchy uh, because I, I don't know. I just thought it was going to be a book about aliens, but it's it ended up being more about these kind of really deep questions about human society and bureaucracy and culture and, uh, intimacy that, uh, uh you know, I guess, uh, conservativism versus liberalism. And it's all being played out through this innocent, unassuming, bordering on autistic character named Mike <laughs> Valentine, Michael Smith, who is delightfully unaware of like the dark side of everything that he's, that he's doing with this religious cult. So, um, all right. So bottom line, uh, this, so this, so this book podcast, this book report is just supposed to be a teaser. I don't want to give you away the ending of the book and, it's, it's not exactly a happy ending, but it's not something that you would expect. And j- things, things start to spiral out of control. So I guess I would summarize this book as like a comedy. And I, I read you some passages from it that kind of were funny to me and stood out at me. But I, I'm honestly getting a headache from making a podcast about this because it it doesn't I don't know for for whatever reason the book doesn't flow normally like a like a medium-sized novel. It's it's kind of all over the place. And I had to do some cross-referencing to really pick up on what messages the author was really trying to make. And I think I started reading it like a month and a half ago and I just chipped away at it bit by bit. So I had to force myself just to record this get it out of the way. Would I recommend this book? Absolutely. It For just sheer entertainment value. It It's a great book in a way that's just hard to describe. And I think it was because I was expecting kind of an adventure story, but it's actually more of a comedy and philosophical story. And it's just rich with dialogue. Like the, the, the lessons are in the, the message he's talking about is in the dialogue, uh, as opposed to you know a bunch of characters on a quest uh, so i would say the like the main conflict in this book is <laughs> So, yeah, I would say the main conflict in the book is basically that, you know, this Martian, Mike, he comes to human society and he realizes that his Martian wisdom is not as useful to mankind as he may have thought. And the existing institutions on Earth are not strong enough to resist the radical teachings that Mike has to offer. And these are teachings of basically about like human interaction and, and, uh, and intimacy and the parallel between grokking and a connection to a higher power, God like figure. And, um, I, I would say the only thing that Mike I mean not the only thing he I mean, he learns everything about human culture but the idea of showmanship is basically what catapults him to founding the church of all Wor- all worlds so he kind of learns the value of sh- of showmanship and yeah I'm just going to leave it at that because if I then I, otherwise I'll be giving away the end so, that's all I have for you on this week's episode of the 3 Deeper Cuts podcast, the lifestyle magazine for the practicing surgical pathologist, bringing you high-signal content fueled by 10% buffer-neutral formalin. I hope you enjoyed listening. If you like this content, subscribe to the newsletter at 3deepercuts.substack.com. At the moment, we're hosted on Substack, on Substack in the form of an audio newsletter. We are also distributed on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So check us out on those platforms. And uh, and I look forward to talking to you again. Feel free to uh, email me back, give me some feedback, and and we will continue making, we'll continue rotating the topics from books, essays, uh, industry magazines, scientific magazines. We'll, we'll keep rotating the topics and try to keep it interesting for you and in January, we'll bring on a guest. Uh, her name's Christelle, and she is a, a former teacher who is now a full-time creator. And uh, I would call her a subject matter expert on uh, AI prompt, prompt generation or prompt writing for chatbots. So I thought it was in- interesting, and it has some applications in medicine. So I'm really excited to uh, meet her. We, we had a call recently and to bring her on the podcast so that is it from now until next time be well and stay curious we'll see you next time